Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is a show where we discuss stories which we think are important but somewhat underreported in the media. And then we conclude the podcast with a bit of a discussion about our heroes and villains of the week. I'm joined this week by Juliet Samuel, Telegraph columnist and presenter of a brand new unheard documentary on China and trade. And we're joined down the line by Henry Olson, Unheard's flyover editor from the US, who joins us from Washington. Hello, both of you. So, Juliet, we're going to come to you for uh, our first underreported story, which very much themes in with your new documentary on China and trade. W- what do you want to talk about? So, I my documentary is about the coming trade war with China, or at least the perceived trade war. And there's been a huge amount of talk about the possibility of the world going back to a kind of 1930s scenario. And what that involved was essentially a spiraling tit for tat of tariffs and capital controls that saw world trade plummet off a cliff uh, with disastrous effects for different for, for many global economies. And uh, so the the worry at the moment is that that's where we're headed back to, uh, led by Donald Trump, who uh, who hates free trade and wants to take us back to an era where economies didn't exchange with each other. But what we've actually discovered, or at least uh, brought out some of the nuances in that of that debate in this documentary, is that it isn't quite as simple about uh, as that. And in fact, what we're seeing really is an argument about how you best achieve the free trade that actually most people on each side of this debate want. And so, uh, I mean, leaving aside Donald Trump himself, who it's certainly possible that he is a long-term and devoted believer in protectionism for its own sake, but most of the people who support his agenda, um, at least in the Republican Party, I think are actually focused on how do we level the playing field with China, which is attempting to play uh, the the rules of trade, the rules of the game in a different way from the way the West does, and in a way that is actually quite unfair on a lot of Western companies that are trying to compete. And, And why is it unfair? What do they do in very simple terms? What is it that China does that's unfair? Well, there's a long list of things you could point to, but uh, top of the list would probably be, for one thing, their tariffs are a lot higher than tariffs in the EU and the US. For another thing, they massively subsidize industries, uh, both through cash handouts and uh, cheap cost of credit subsidized by the government uh, in a way that Western governments don't do. Uh, they uh, th- There's a huge issue over technology theft and uh, intellectual property, intellectual property, whether the Chinese government has essentially given a a kind of wink and a nudge to its companies that they have carte blanche to steal technology from their Western partners, uh, which the Chinese government would dispute that they do that. But uh, there's certainly evidence that a lot of technology theft has happened. Uh, And then market access. So Chinese companies over recent years have been on a huge spending spree across the world. The Chinese government told them to go out into the world and buy stuff, whether it's resources, but specifically technology. And so they've been buying a lot of Western companies, which is fine in the sense that we we get a lot of investment. And um, we speak to a company called Imagination Technologies 
British company whose future was actually saved by a a set of Chinese investors Uh, who put money into it. And what did this company do, Imagination? They they make graphics chips and their microchips are in uh, most iPhones and electronic devices in the world. They make billions and billions of these chips and they are a very... um, they are a, a, a top technology company. But the issue there is basically we don't have reciprocal access. So our companies can't go to China and buy the equivalent of imagination technologies there. It's not fair. It's not a level playing field. So, Julia, is, is your conclusion that we're being too negative about Trump's trade war and actually um, is protectionism a good thing? Well, that's not quite my argument. It it was a strange position I found myself in because I am an ardent supporter of free trade and I went into it expecting to condemn every aspect of Trump's policy. But what I actually found was uh, that A, some of the rhetoric around the trade war is hysterical. We aren't yet in a trade war scenario. We are in a trade skirmish. And, uh, And the second thing I found was that actually... It is legitimate to say that we need to use some tougher tactics in this trade skirmish to get what we want from China. And it is legitimate to be more confrontational. And if that is a strategy that can result in a better terms of trade in the end, then actually it does serve the free trade agenda. Interesting. So you think so you're basing a bit a bit of conflict could actually get better trade for everybody in the end. Henry, what's your view on on what Juliet's been saying? No, I think Juliet's right about that issue. Um, I think that particularly in the United States, uh, we have felt the direct competition from many Chinese manufacturing firms that uh, are made in China. Uh, is often a something that we see on things that used to be made in America, and many things, and uh, particularly components of pieces of uh, technological parts, are made in China and then shipped over here, and that's had a dramatic effect on employment and wages among people who are lower skilled. Uh, for many years, the people who switched from voting Democratic to voting for Donald Trump have been complaining to no avail that Chinese competition has been pushing them out of jobs and ruining their. Com- Communities. So beginning to push back on the legitimate issues that Julia raises is absolutely of political importance to the United States and uh, something that uh, it's well high time that somebody was pursuing. But the other thing that I think we ought to take note of is that unlike other countries that we are engaging in trade with, China means to set out to be a strategic competitor to be both the uh, United States and to the Western alliance. It's using Western money, Western markets, and Western methods to build a state-of-the-art military and a rather repressive political system that is expressly designed to challenge us for global dominance. Uh, And I'm reminded of the phrase uh, that Lenin is said to have uttered that when the last capitalist is hung, it will be with the rope that he sold us. China seems to be trying to prove Lenin was wrong, that in fact it won't be with rope that the capitalists sold them, it'll rather be with rope that they manufactured with the capitalist money and the capitalist ideas. And so, but I suppose in terms of your comment about, um, you know, the, the made in China thing, which you know is a bit of a you know it's a it's a meme and it's a well-worn thing isn't the truth though for for countries like america and the united kingdom we won't ever really now be able to compete with the chinese on some levels in terms of 
wages and and all of that kind of stuff because we just have very different societies so you know it's never going to be quite the same we're never going to be able to to do the sort of same thing that china does in our own economies well i think the question is that if we're going to effectively what free trade does is allow people with money and ideas to contract with lower price labor and if that's what we're going to do, we're going to massively permit contracting to lower price labor that's going to have an effect on the people in our own countries whom we used to contract with. Uh, and the answer has yet to be come up, you know, for people who believe in free trade, how to deal with the social and economic dislocations that, that shift causes is something that the establishment of both center-right and center-left have failed to come to grips with. So my argument is that if we're not going to push back on these sort of legitimate questions, if we are trying to move to a place where we can continue to massively have Western investment and Western ideas contract with lower-priced foreign labor, particularly Chinese labor, then what are we going to do for our citizens? because they're not going to go quietly into the night and they're not going to be very happy if all they get is benefit checks and they can't work at a decent job. Juliet, do, what, what, do you, what do you say to, to that? I think there are two parts to this issue that we've only been really discussing one of them in terms of the, uh, the disaffected and the displacement of American or Western labor. Uh, and one is China. Uh, and its methods. And the other, frankly, is the advance of technology and automation, which really is responsible for more jobs going than China is. Uh, and so the the way we deal with that is by educating our populations and by preparing them to take new kinds of jobs that will be available in the future. And that has certainly been a failure of Western policy. Uh, and so you could say to some degree that China is being overused as a scapegoat for some of these government failings in the West. Uh, do you think, honestly, people in the Rust Belt are going, some Chinese man's taken my job? I do think, that, yeah, I do think that there is a suspicion of trade in the US that actually goes back a long time. I don't think this came from nowhere. I mean, the... But you, do you think they're actually blaming the Chinese? I think they're blaming or do you uh, think they're NAFTA, blaming the, they're blaming the other in terms of yeah, the, the immigrants those and foreign the foreigners producers or whatever and um, I think some of, you know, there's a strong element of xenophobia uh, in some of this debate but I also think there's a strong reaction to government failure and also to the fact that the terms of trade aren't fair right now and we have failed to deal with that issue well, it's a very interesting topic, and um, you can hear Juliet's uh, documentary on the Unheard website, will be up, which will be up on, on Monday. Very interesting issue um, that we will continue to hear much more about. But we're going to go to our next underreported story, and I think we are staying with all things American. Uh, Henry, your story. Yes, well, one of the things that's been going on for the last year is that Americans are warming up to Donald Trump that for all of the international controversy that he causes and continues to cause, the story of his first year in office was that despite peaks and valleys, his popularity was on the downswing. 
hitting a low of about 37% in the middle of December. Uh, but ever since then, despite peaks and valleys, he's been moving up. And now he's, uh, a couple of days ago, he broke 44% on an average. Now he's slumped back a little bit to 43%. But we, if the current trends continue, he's going to go into the midterms as popular or probably a little bit more popular than Barack Obama was. And that's something that virtually nobody talks about. If you don't actually look at poll data, you would think that Americans are every bit as much dissatisfied with Donald Trump today as they were eight months ago. And that's very far from the case. Interesting. Uh, Juliet, what's, what's your take on that? Uh, I, I think that is interesting. I think maybe it relates to him passing tax reform through and up until that point he really didn't have much to show for his time in office and so but I'm I'm wondering what you think is behind it Henry um, because I I don't follow it as closely as you do but uh, it certainly seems that some of the Russia stuff that the Democrats have become a bit obsessed with is failing to stick and failing to go anywhere um, but it, it's certainly an interesting, uh, all assumptions that we make nowadays on political dynamics seem to be proved wrong one way or another. Definitely. I think there's a number of I think there's a number of things going on. Um, the passage of the tax reform actually did not jump his numbers up, uh, but I think the, 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 there's other evidence that says that the opinions about tax reform have gone up slightly as people realize that they are benefiting somewhat. Uh, and that's a contributing factor. But I, the news here, when it's not about Russia or something, has been dominated by uh, three things. Uh, it's been dominated by a debate over immigration, where Trump took a very strong but not overly harsh line, given the American context. Uh, the question about trade, where, of course, there's very sharp divisions on that. And the question about the gunland, uh, the parkland shootings, where Trump, uh, despite some initial comments, is basically back the NRA. And on each of those cases, he's been strong, he's been consistent, and he's actually been broadly in line with the opinions of his broader coalition. Uh, The Democrats who voted for Hillary Clinton are never going to like Donald Trump. They didn't like Mitt Romney. They didn't like John McCain before him. They wouldn't like Mike Pence if he were the the president. The intensity might differ, but we shouldn't remember that the Democratic Party wanted to impeach George W. Bush 14 years ago as well. So impeaching Donald Trump is not new for them. Uh, What's changing is that he's rallying all elements of his coalition, and he's doing it using some of the very same controversial tactics that don't sit well with elite Republicans, but sit quite well with voters by talking about things like guns, immigration, and trade. I mean, I think uh, you've probably hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think certainly my reading of, of, of the situation is everyone is kind of doubling down on what they think. If you like Trump, you're really, really pleased with with what he's doing. You're really pleased that in the face of yet more mass shootings, he's right back there sucking up to the NRA. You probably love the fact that he does hugely divisive, you know, bad sort of rhetoric on sort of immigration. But if you don't love Trump, then of course you think he's awful. And, you know, you're very much, you know, persuaded by the the Stormy Daniels stuff, by the... um, by the, the the ongoing investigation. Interesting. I was just looking at a poll uh, conducted for CNN by SSRS, which said that actually what's what's been very good for Trump is, of course, North Korea. 
and that about three quarters of Americans, uh, 77%, approve of Donald Trump's decision to meet with Kim Jong-un. So do you think that has helped him as well, Henry? Yes, I should have mentioned North Korea because that's another position where uh, nine months ago he was considered to be uh, uh, out there, dangerous, radical, and now it looks like, at least to the public eye, that Trump's uh, positions are bearing fruit, which is to say that we're finally getting somewhere with North Korea. Um, I suspect the same is going to be true with the Iran deal, that as unpopular as his decision to remove the United States from the deal is elsewhere, um, it is extremely popular with the people who voted for him. Uh, and it is, I believe, broadly popular with the broader American public that views on the Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Iranian and American-Iranian conflicts are very different here than they are elsewhere. And it's the same thing. If you tended to like what Barack Obama did on those questions, you're going to think Donald Trump is the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's very... It's very polarized. I mean, the, the, the issue is, I think, both America, well, actually, like the United Kingdom, like so many countries, are very, very divided on politics, but also on culture grounds as well. And I think both camps are quite um, entrenched. I did read a very interesting poll, though, about another person's popularity who has, uh, which has rocketed, and that is Melania. Um, there was a poll out, and her popularity has gone up, and six in ten Americans approve of uh, Melania compared to four in ten um, who approve of Donald Trump and actually there was a very interesting poll she's done this campaign recently Henry hasn't she be the best which is all about young people and trying to be nicer to each other and anti-bullying but then quite funnily a university poll found that seven out of ten Americans say that the president is definitely not a good role model for children <laughs> yeah, yeah I think with Melania there's uh, when people see her on television uh, she looks poised, she looks graceful, she doesn't make public missteps. And here is one place where I think the president's reputed infidelities um, are coming to to help in, uh, in a minor way, which is that much as when Bill Clinton's um, infidelities came out 20 years ago, Hillary Clinton stood by her man and her popularity rocketed. I think that's happening to Melania, is that even people who don't like Donald Trump can look and say, you know, you're kind of the put-upon spouse and you made a decision to stay and you seem pretty decent, so we're <laughs> going to give you the benefit See, of the doubt. I, I've got a slightly different theory, Henry. I think the reason why her popularity has gone up because that footage of her recoiling in horror every time Donald Trump goes to grab her hand um, is actually the thing that makes the public think, yeah, we feel your pain, Melania. <laughs> <laughs> you now, know, they, all things seem to be that they have a very... You know, dis, they have a very separate relationship, but they, they have a certainly connect, do. They, but they certainly have a, connect, have a very separate. But they have a connection as well. It's not just you know, it, it's not that she hates him. It's that they have a very different type of oh, relationship. Oh, that's a great way of framing it. I remember thinking at one point when the Russia stuff was blowing up, you've got, you've got Trump, you've got his son, you've got his son-in-law all prancing around having meetings they shouldn't have. Melania Trump and and his daughter, in fact. Um, you, Melania Trump's the only Trump who seems to know what her role is and sticks to it. <laughs> With, there's, a, there's a joke that's going around the comedy circuit, which is Melania is known as Melania Blink Twice for Help. Bless her, basically. <laughs> uh, right, we are now going to go into the last section um, of the podcast, which are heroes and villains of the week. I'm going to start with an unusual um, hero. This is uh, a man called David 
Goodall, who is a world-renowned scientist and botanist. And he is 104. He was rather 104. And he uh, was living in Australia and he decided that he had had enough and he wanted to end his own life. Now, you can't do that under the law in Australia. So um, he travelled to a Swiss suicide clinic and he uh, took his own life with his family um, surrounding him and he died to the sound of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I've chosen him as uh, my uh, Hero of the Week discuss um, because I think we are there's a big debate now raging about people you know having a good life but also now should people have a good death should people be able to manage their exit from this world provided that they are of sound mind provided that um you know they're not being coerced into it and my personal view is that actually i think this is something that um governments should be looking at there's a big a campaign in the United Kingdom at the moment to allow people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, they have six months left uh, to manage their own um, departure, their own their own death. But obviously it's hugely, hugely controversial. It is permitted in certain states in America, which I was fascinated by. Um, Oregon is one state that's been doing it for, for quite a long time. Um, but it's a hugely, hugely controversial uh, issue. Um, what, what do you guys think, Julia? What, Juliet, what's your, your take? Uh, I, I think in principle, yes, people should be allowed to, to choose to die. Uh, I would still have to be convinced on some of the practicalities as to how you determine they're of sound mind, since some people making this decision will obviously be very ill, and how you ensure that there aren't perverse incentives that could lead to pressure and things like that. But I think in principle, people should certainly have bodily autonomy. They should be allowed to choose if their life is not worth living anymore. And I think that as society, as medical science gets better, perversely, this issue will come up more because Mm. we've become very, very good at keeping people alive, but not always alive in a state that is leads to a very high quality of life and so uh, this is an issue that will affect more and more people as they get to the stage where they're in pain or they're exhausted or they just don't want to go on and And uh, sometimes they don't want to put their family through uh, the 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 trauma of having to care for them and look after them as well right exactly henry what's your take on this i i um I definitely think that people should be permitted to refuse medical care uh, and that uh, the idea of being hooked to a respirator for the rest of, uh, you know, for the last few months of your life when uh, there's no hope at the end is something that you should be able to do uh, to refuse. I'm very leery of allowing people like Dr. Goodall to do what he did, precisely for the reasons Juliet mentioned, that he's kind of like the poster child of the, as far as we know, clearly uh, still with it, clearly bodily healthy, uh, making a clear choice. Uh, the Most of the people are in gray areas, and there are too many concerns that I have that you would have people, not that the elderly person doesn't want to care for the person, Uh, doesn't want to have the children care for them, but rather the children really don't want to have the burden or that there's a doctor who um, uh, succumbs to to 
proper influence. And I'm very concerned with allowing um, self-chosen death for anything other than terminally ill. And I'd much prefer it be done as it tends to be done here by withdrawal of medical care rather than through active measures. It's interesting because Oregon have, have done this. Um, I think it's Oregon. We'll, we'll, we'll check on that. Um, there is a, there is a state in America that has been doing this for quite a long time, and they actually give people the medication, um, and they can take the medication when they want. But interestingly, um, for a lot of people, just having the medication in their possession, knowing that they have control over their own agency, uh, means sometimes they don't actually, in a lot of cases, they don't take it, which I think is a fascinating idea. I think for a lot of people, it's the idea of just having the agency and, and, and having control. Um, we're now going to move on to our villain of the week. Now, this I think, to be fair, in this story, everybody is a villain, to be absolutely fair. I'm talking about the um, Iran nuclear deal. And um, it's been suggested that Netanyahu has played quite a strong role in the disintegration of the Iran deal um, and that he has wound up Donald Trump. He and Donald Trump are, are very, very close. Obviously, there's been the Jerusalem decision recently, which has gone in favour of Israel rather controversially and that um, you know his uh, sort of body language in all of this has sort of tipped Trump over the edge uh, the nuclear deal is now off and we could be staring World War 3 in the face in the Middle East so uh, the villain of the week is Netanyahu over his role in the Iran deal discuss Juliet I, um, uh, I, I, I think on balance that Trump's decision was the wrong one. Uh, I think that he has he's split the West geopolitically, as he keeps doing, on issues in which we need to be united. Uh, he has he's done so uh, without really lining up um, enough of a a, a convincing in argument to the international community for doing so and. Uh, I think that that's very damaging to the whole concept of striking cooperative agreements together. Um, so my, I mean, on, on the nuclear deal uh, itself, um, it seems that Iran was uh, was meeting its obligations in terms of its nuclear program. There is a dispute over whether it was meeting, what its obligations were and whether it was meeting them in, in terms of its anti-ballistic missile uh, development. Uh, and um, but I, I didn't really hear Trump trying to make that argument in any concerted way. And instead, uh, I saw him sort of pushing ahead with a policy because it was something he'd said he'd do. And he'd had this emotive language about, uh, you know, American soldiers being paraded on TV. Mm. And so uh, I'm not totally convinced that there's actually a geopolitical strategy behind this. No, I, I would sort of agree with that. I mean. I think part of the reason that, that drove Trump to do this as well, A, it was a big um, campaign promise, but also it's driven by quite a strong desire to to rip up a lot of the stuff that his predecessor had done, be it, you know, Obamacare um, and, of course, this sort of Iran deal. So I think his uh, his ideology of just, um, you know, everything that Obama did was was terrible and um, factoring heavily into this. But Maybe I'm wrong. What what do you think, um, Henry? You said earlier that you felt that a lot of Americans would would really support Trump on this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, uh, we should remember that in America, the country's only committed when a treaty is signed and approved by the Senate. 
The reason Donald Trump could do this is because President Obama knew that there was not support under our Constitution, which requires a two-thirds vote, uh, to approve such a treaty. And so consequently, it was either going to be a personal agreement from the president or there was going to be no deal. Uh, there's always been opposition to this. It's not Donald Trump. The entire, virtually the entire Republican Party is opposed to the Iran deal. Whoever the Republicans would have nominated would have done the same thing. Uh, and you can disagree with that, but it's not a personal question. It's a policy question that comes down to, do you think that Iran is capable under its current regime of being restrained by agreements? Uh, or do you think that agreements enable the regime to become stronger and more aggressive under the guise uh, by permitting them access to foreign capital and foreign markets. And in the United States, the Republican Party tends to take that view rather unanimously. And the American people tend to take that view, if not unanimously, but certainly by a large majority. Uh, and I don't think that Netanyahu actually played a big amount. I think what's actually more important is John Bolton, is that the president uh, was somebody who wanted to do this. He was surrounded by people who were more conventional and more establishment in their thinking. And he now has advisors who can go about and carry out his instincts. I think it's much more important that John Bolton is next to him than not yet Netanyahu had his uh, theatrical televised address. Although Netanyahu was the person that was sort of winding everybody up, saying that they're, they're you know, kind of they're not being clear, they're not being clean about their about their weapons. But whatever the fallout, it's going to be. Uh, fascinating and that the ramifications of this will be huge obviously politically in the region and um, it could have profound consequences for internal politics in Iran as well with lots of the more hardline uh, factions in Iran um, you know really using this to oust uh, the moderate, I put moderate in, in, in inverted commas, obviously, the, the more moderate um, uh, government in Iran. So that could have profound consequences. It'd be very interesting to see how Saudi Arabia reacts because if Iran goes back to saying, right, we're going to go back to developing our nuclear missiles, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia said, right, well, if Tehran's having them, we're having them too. Um, and then, of course, um, oil. You know, there's going to be a very interesting knock-on um, impact on, on the oil situation and the general stability. We we hear that um, Iran and Israel are already squaring up to each other. So it's going to be very, very interesting. Um, and as so much of Trump's uh, foreign adventures, time will tell how all of this works out. It could be complete genius or it could be absolute madness. Um, thank you so much to my guests, uh, Juliet and Henry, for joining me uh, this week. Thank you very much for listening to the Unheard Weekly podcast. My name is Aisha Hazarika. Tune in next week. Mm-hmm.